Welcome to Season 2, Episode 20, Beyond the Zero. I'm yours, Ben. Joining me today is Mark De Silva. Mark is a writer. His extraordinary new book, The Logos, is out through Splice on April 28th. He joins us from his home in New York. Welcome to the show, Mark. Hi, it's very nice to be here. How is life in Crown Heights? It's good. It's, uh, it's new to me. Uh, I haven't been here very long, but uh, I'm sort of settling into a different part of Brooklyn that I haven't, I, I haven't experienced really much of before. And I'm sort of just really still getting acquainted, but it's been fun. Yeah, it's a really interesting place. So I spent a bit of time there. It's really interesting. I want to start with philosophy. You hold a PhD in philosophy from Cambridge. Right. It seems philosophy and human nature are themes you explore pretty heavily in both your books. Could you tell us a bit about, about your academic journey and what prompted you to move into fiction? Sure. Uh, I guess in uh, college, I sort of was probably more focused on things like music, and uh, to some extent literature, but more music. And then I, I switched towards, I sort of started tilting towards philosophy pretty early. I, there are some traces of that even in high school. And then uh, I decided, yeah, um, you know, particularly the philosophy of language, some of the basic epistemological puzzles, uh, you know, uh, skepticism, those sorts of things um, sort of appealed to me. And I sort of leaned away from music, which I think was the biggest rival possibility uh, towards uh, a pretty, you know, close study of particular philosophy of language and philosophy of mind. And that, I guess, is still forms the core of uh, maybe what I do in fiction is still heavily grounded in questions of the mind, I would say. Yeah. Interesting. In terms of biography, you yeah. now live in New York, which is where you were also born, but you spent time obviously in the UK, you spent time on the West Coast, um, and your parents are from Sri Lanka. Do you want to tell us a bit about, you know, growing up? And Yeah. Uh, uh, my parents, they came to New York from Sri Lanka in, uh, I think, 1970. And uh, they're both psychiatrists. And they, they began to practice and train there, really, uh, doing their residency in, um, in uh, New York. And so we, we, we sort of... Uh, they sort of lived the sort of New York life. It was very exciting to them, obviously, and uh, full of sort of new and sort of chaos. I mean, New York in the 70s, of course, was very exciting, maybe too exciting. And then uh, at 78, I was born, and then they decided weather's better, other opportunities are better and stuff. So they came west. And so I grew up um, in a town called Redlands outside of Los Angeles, about 80 miles or so. And that's, yeah, that's where I was for until I went to college on the East Coast again, yeah. And then tell us a bit more about your PhD over at Cambridge. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, just out of undergrad, I was I was thinking very hard in my last couple of years about um, the mind and uh, human nature, as you mentioned. Those sorts of things had had very much appealed to me, and and basic issues in epistemology and metaphysics. So I sort of thought, well, I did consider briefly doing some sort of MFA or something because I was thinking. I was leaning strongly away from that, my sort of musical interests that had sort of preceded uh, towards more literary. I, I figured I was going to do some form of writing and I wanted it to be certainly philosophically steeped, but I considered MFAs even at that point and thinking maybe uh, 
begin something like a novel, et cetera. But that ended up being deferred. I thought better use of my time in terms of schooling would be um, philosophy because you sort of need somebody there to sort of help you through some of the more technical parts. So with that, I applied and I also wanted to go abroad and see something else. And maybe in the same way that my parents also saw something else. And uh, it was, yeah, it was very interesting period in, uh, that I got to spend in England studying also not not necessarily connecting with everything to do with academic philosophy but being there and, and gleaning what I could from it anyway you know but what I could take that I now have channeled in other directions but uh but that that was the the, the gist of it I think you currently work for the New York Times as a researcher and editor mm-hmm. tell us about your work oh uh, yeah I, I'm, I'm at the magazine now I started on the opinion desk um as a news assistant. And then I did some editing for them as well, uh, which was sort of interesting. I mean, every week you're getting these uh, pieces by politicians or by various talking heads or even celebrity pieces. And you're trying to distill something that, you know, maybe has a bit more meat on the bone than um, sort of uh, idle sort of chatter. You often get these kinds of pieces from sort of famous people who think they're sort of entitled in a way to a, to some kind of venue. So we would sort of work with them and sort of enrich those pieces and make them something more serious so that was my first experience editing um uh properly after doing a few internships so uh, that that was good I, I eventually i i switched over to the magazine thinking hey how can i go part-time in a context where i could put more time into writing because while i was there i was working on uh, square wave my first book and that was like a good i guess that was about a five six year stretch where I went to the office, did my stuff at the opinion desk. And, you know, I was waking up at five in the morning to, uh, you know, write square wave about three, four hours a day in the morning. So that, that was a looking back, it was a very taxing period, but I did know leaving graduate school was not leaving the world of, of writing. It was leaving, doing that writing in an academic context. So that was, a, uh, it was essential to, you know, carry on with that. And so I was juggling those. And then I ended up finding my way to the, New York Times Magazine because I, I turned into uh, more of a research role there on fact checking and that's just sort of facilitated let me go part-time and that allowed me to say write this more recent novel which is uh, on the long side shall we say um, maybe more quickly than it otherwise would have been written. Let's move on to your first novel Square Wave. It came out in 2016 it revolves around Carl Stagg a writer in an alternate near future as he tries to write a historical novel about Sri Lanka well, in the present, he's a night watchman saving prostitutes from a series of attacks, and there are subplots involving weaponizing storms yes. and conspiracies. Um, yeah. What inspired you to write the novel? Uh, that's tricky. I mean, I, I again, I, I tend to read pretty widely, and uh, I was reading at one point late in graduate school. Well, one, th- I mean, the first thing is that I was starting to realize pretty much halfway through graduate school that this was not going to be the life for me of, a, of an academic and writing journal articles and that sort of thing. So I was looking for a way to, to deal with ideas that felt more open to my other interests and maybe to my talents that I felt more natural um, being a bit more associative than uh, one is permitted in analytic philosophy, especially these days, you know, it's all about the job hunt. It's all about this, you know, it's highly bureaucratic. And frankly, I went into graduate school with the idea of avoiding a bureaucratic kind of professionalized life. But of course, 
um that's absurd right that, that that's just a that's a, that's what it that, that's what it's for it's a professional training and um especially now it's very narrow so this gave me an opportunity to say be a philosopher but in a in a new vehicle that was open to other interests that i had you know that wasn't something that i had to say well i have to set that aside i have to compartmentalize i feel like novel writing means at the end of compartmentalization you're allowed to just create a total work that sort of integrates your various interests. So I think it came apart, but partly by just things I was reading about and then partly an interest in Sri Lanka and history that I had sort of taken up pretty late, late twenties really um, learning more about the, the sort of the ancient history, the place, the more recent history, and just thinking through some of my, my, the novelists that, you know, have meant most to me have dealt with sort of, colonial and post-colonial issues, people like Conrad or Nepal or Kutsia, those are our major sort of totems for me. So I think as a reader, I was interested in that. So I thought, well, that, that seems to be the meat on the bone for me too. So I, I began investigating that way. And frankly, I mean, I was sort of taking a shot in the dark to some extent. I had not written any sort of extended fiction before. So it was a bit of a gamble. Can, can I integrate the, all these materials and interests in a way that was not permitted, say, in the graduate program, but I mean, there was no sure thing about that. So it was a bit fortuitous that, you know, things came together as they did. I love the historical sections in this book because mm -hmm. they, they really do tell like this other story of Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. um, and it kind of reminded me a little bit of, of, you know, some of the historical selections in uh, sections in books like V and things like that by Pinchon. Yes. But um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about as well is the contemporary setting in that book is set in kind of this alt future. Do you want to tell us why that's appealing to write about an alternate future? Uh, I think uh, what's interesting is, yeah, I mean, I think there's something in the air that, that, that you know, people were sort of, I mean, the book was obviously written long before uh, this sort of, um, published in 2016, but it was really written in the, in the, in the early uh, 2010s, when there was yet no real uh, presence of, you know, the strong populism and obviously Trump and that sort of thing. But there was a sense with the Tea Party and uh, previously Sarah Palin and these other things of a, of, of a fraying society to some extent. So I think it became interesting to speculate. Uh, I mean, I began that book probably in 2009. So even at that stage, I thought, what would it be to imagine a society that went further down this path in a way um, towards a, uh, a decay of, uh, you know, strong sort of democratic or liberal spirit and into something that was more liberal and, you know, in some ways more communitarian, you know, there's something to be said for alternatives to a kind of universalist society. And so I think the book deals with that conflict between wanting to respect autonomy and these other strands of wanting to respect like uh, community bonds. And the fact that America is kind of a, you know, it's so heterogeneous, the, those bonds are pretty tenuous, I think in general. So that, I think that's what, where, where would that lead? And, and, and we are experiencing it, I think. <laughs> um, One of the big selling points on this book for me was the blurb by Sergio de la Pava, which I think is a, uh, Pretty exciting to be blurbed by him, especially for a debut novel. That's right. I mean, I, I sent it to him. I did a lot of things in a pretty homespun way, frankly. Uh, uh, you know, I just sent it to him out of the blue and said, um, 
or, or rather I sent him an email inquiry out of the blue said, look, I, I, you know, I really enjoyed Naked Singularity. Uh, I think we're both in some ways operating outside of a kind of MFA idea of fiction. We want to do things that um, really, you know, don't really have a, a pedigree within that world. And I, I, you know, I had known from interviews from him that that's definitely how he, he, he saw himself and approached himself. So in a sort of outsider way to that MFA world, I said, Hey, would you be interested in taking a look? And he said, look, I can only promise to read a hundred pages. And then if I'm, if I'm interested, I'll ask you to send me the rest, but otherwise not. And he wanted a hard copy. So I, I sent that. And luckily he, he, he did ask for the rest. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he, I guess he took an interest. He saw, I guess, something in common between his way of, of, of navigating fiction and, and my own. All right, let's move on to your new novel, The Logos. It was almost 10 years in the making. The best way I can describe it is a cross between the recognitions and Mad Men. Could you tell us a bit more about it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it came about through uh, a lot of thinking about, um, frankly, you know, in a way I, I was after Square Wave, I had spent, you know, five, six, seven years now in an artistic practice, right? And so I, I think issues of the place of an artist in, in, in the world that we have now became naturally, you know, of, of special interest to me, personal interest, frankly. So those start issues started circulating. I, I think that's the, where I started getting very interested. Most of my books start with a lot of reading uh, before I get to character and all, all the other sorts of more nitty gritty stuff. So I was reading a lot in sort of graphic design. Um, uh, also living in New York, you're just bombarded with like the absolute, you know, center of media and center of of commerce and capital, certainly in America, that that that's the way you one experiences the place. I think so. It's partly maybe a response to living in the city and trying to understand what makes it tick, which took me down those avenues of advertising, um, of uh, design, and in the ways in which you know the contemporary visual artist is often you know not very far from uh, the marketers and advertisers. And I mean, obviously, that was a tradition that artists like Warhol kind of endorsed I me mean, started as an illustrator and switched towards fine art in the book we have a, a an artist who starts in fine art and sort of switches towards illustration as it were so it's a kind of inverted kind of Warholian thing and, and seeing if what kind of platform does the commercial uh, offer the artist when that is sort of the soul of our society however degraded to not talk about it is partly to miss the point of 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 one important part of art, which is actually confronting or embodying the society we have rather than merely the one we, we wish we had. I have to ask you about your take on social media and marketing and how it's used in the world of art, because I think this book really does speak to that a lot about how art can be, I guess, taken advantage of in a lot of ways uh, and used for commerce and things like that. It's become something that is a vehicle of commerce rather than a vehicle of art for art's sake. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely true. And uh, um, it's, it's something we have observed now, I think, for quite a while. And it's, 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 it's sort of come to a head and it's at, at, a, at a new level. It has been kicked into a new gear since, say, the evolution of uh, sites like Facebook and then Twitter and Instagram further on. Uh, but at the same time, I think, you know, that, that's been going on for a while. We, we, there, there is the obvious point that there's something wrong with the contemporary um, art world and the, and the way, way things are marketed and sold. 
But uh, I think I think the book is is partly a way to seeing beyond that and saying, well, okay, there's there's one thing to be ironic or poke fun at the world that we have, and and that's what you know the Warhol, Coons, Hearst, that sort of tradition, and there many others that have followed. Um, but how how far can irony take you in that way? So this this was more a way of saying, what would it be to involve yourself in advertising, as it were, in earnest, and consider that actually the highest form of, a, an, of an art that effectively embodies the world that we have. In the same way, you know, Hegel talks about Greek art, the statue, a Greek statue is something that, as it were, absorbed the world around it and represented the values of that culture. Is a, is a, it's a, it, this was a way of saying, you know, in, in a way, I think we are, I mean, we have to accept in some ways who, what we are and what we've become and I think what an artist can do first and foremost is express that totality of meaning. And then one gets on to things of criticism and critique, et cetera. But I often think that's missing that before irony, before critique is, do we even understand what, what, what the, the, the sort of sea we're swimming in? And I think that's what the artist takes up first and foremost. How, do, how does one approach this with in an earnest spirit rather than merely in a cynical spirit or a jaded spirit? And that's the challenge, I think. With this book, you have your artist, I guess, being challenged to create a whole lot of different campaigns for an advertiser. How did you come up with those particular ideas? Uh, that's that's tricky. Um, I guess here's here's the thing. This is this is where it comes from my reading, right? I I think in the last ten years, then the book sort of tracks my reading in that way. I became interested in performance to some extent. I think I do think of the book as a book about performance in multiple domains. I mean, the, there's one of the products being sold as a kind of performance enhancing uh, drink, uh, you know, that fits in the sort of nootropic and um, as wellness drinks we have now, et cetera, and the athletic drinks, you know, that whole market. So one of them sort of traces uh, that sort of lineage, but there's also performance in terms of uh, theater, right? Acting, that kind of performance. And what is that? Uh, what, it, what uh, how does that relate to other forms of performance? And the other thread in the book is is uh, American football, of course. So, and those are though I think it became an issue of this. I think we're a society that is not is not nearly as interested in reading, say, a book, uh, as opposed to seeing some amount of spectacle. Right? Spectacle is part of what we are. We we've known that for a long time. And so I've sort of examining, I guess, just in my reading, you know, various forms of the way uh, we witness performance and the, our, our traction to a great performance, say, and our desire for that. So I think it, it sort of snowballed from like, I, I, I took a great interest in theater as an undergraduate, even I had an interest in that. So I pursued that. Anyway, I watched way too much sports, uh, sort of in a narcotic way, not unlike the protagonist. So I just, from there, I think I thought, oh, this is a book about performance, isn't it? And I sort of worked with that theme. In terms of length, it's a thousand page brick, but reading it was not arduous in any way for me. It felt like I was reading something that's three or 400 pages because of the way you've structured it. Um, the production from Splice is, is amazing as well. What was the writing process like for you? And did you worry about length as you were writing? Um, I think, I think uh, I, uh, length, I knew, I, I think I imagined the book maybe at half this length, to be honest, when I first had read a certain amount and I had some materials and ideas uh, coming together for me. I think I speculated it'd be a little bit longer than, than Square Wave, but maybe not that much longer. When I got into the meat of it, 
um, you know, it started to extend in certain ways. But to speak to your point about, you know, your reading experience of it, I think one of the things I was on the sort of formal level uh, I was interested in is how do you write a really long kind of extended meditation um, that isn't, as it were, kitchen sink? You know, it's, it's not a set of, you know, uh, a uh, medical report here, a, uh, a newspaper clipping there. It's not a mix like a Pinchonian kind of book or that kind of, um, that type of kaleidoscopic book where a bunch of materials have sort of been presented to you in a kind of um, uh, melange. I wanted to say, well, I, as I described it to some people, it's, I think of it as a very long short story almost, like it's systematic, it, it develops, it doesn't swerve, it's sort of very linear in that sense and, and very classical in certain respects, right? I mean, the last chapter, I think of, it's more or less an epilogue, right? In a kind of 19th century way almost. So I, I, I was concerned about length, but at the same time, I felt that was the challenge of this book. Square Wave does bring together many materials in a more collage-like way. I wanted to avoid collage at all costs here and say, let me give people a, one long tunnel to pass through and see see how long I can sustain that interest and develop that interiority. And, and, and that was anyway, the, the aim of, of, of the project. You've done a great job with it because it does feel like that. It does feel like you've set the characters up from the beginning and we just, we learn more about them and what they go through as you go along. And you're right. It doesn't, it doesn't go overseas. It's very centralized to where it is and it just stays in the same place. And we just learn more and more about the characters as we go. So I think you've done a fantastic job with that. And it does, as I said before, it does feel like reading something that's not a thousand pages in any way. It, very interesting because I, I guess after writing Square Wave, which is somewhat uh, one could say sort of self-consciously uh, avant-garde in its form, I was sort of interested in saying, well, what would it be with the biggest experiment you could do now is let's, let's try to give it a really, you know, extended, in some ways, classical kind of narrative, almost in a 19th century way, but in, still infuse it with, you know, uh, significant philosophical substance, and as well as significant, uh, um, you know, quite some of the materials are quite, you know, quite dark, I would say. And I think that's part of, I wanted to take that challenge on of, of saying, let me, let me give you a very uh, somewhat straight presentation of this and let the, the subject matter do the talking as opposed to me manipulating the shape of things um, from above formally. So I, I wanted to be a little more, less obtrusive, you might say, given that how obtrusive I had been in Square Wave, that the challenge for me was to disappear a little bit. And, and that, that, that's maybe why it has, has turned out that way. I want to briefly mention your publishers. You've got Splice, uh, who are getting it out very soon, and Clash as well. Is that right? That's right. What's the process been like working with them? Uh, it's been, I mean, uh, Daniel at, at Clash is a, is a brilliant man, and he's a very sensitive line editor. He, uh, as I say, this material, is, some of it is, 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 is on the dark side, and uh, he seemed to be able to find his way through without trying to put his finger on the scale and shift the content. I mean, at, at one point I was working with an agent on this book and let's just say uh, that that didn't last because they weren't, they weren't pleased about, you know, the character doesn't get the kind of comeuppance in the right way. Or some of these themes are, as, as we know, especially in the last 15, uh, sorry, five years, seven years, 
things have become you know very politically charged in terms of regulated speech and you know, right thought that sort of thing so what i found great about dan and also about christoph at clash was an openness and saying look we might take some flack for hey this isn't a you know a public service announcement but again then again was this novels are not really in that business when they're doing their their highest work so i, I found it dan to be a fantastic editor christoph as well offering more global edits less than this purely line uh, he got me to to you know render a scene towards the end uh, dramatically rather than sort of summary. I thought that was very key. So it's been interesting having two editors though, which I didn't have for, for Square Wave, trying to juggle perceptions and conceptions. But in the end, I think it has yielded a, a, a slightly richer result. Yeah, I definitely urge everybody to go out and buy a copy of this book because I think it'll be on a lot of uh, lists at the end of the year for you know top books. I was going to ask you, and I asked you before we started recording about your process of working on new material. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah, I, I, um, I tend to, as I say, do, do uh, quite a bit of reading, uh, reading around, wandering, I would say intellectual wandering, which is one of, I think, the things I find most intrinsically uh, pleasurable and instructive and valuable. Um, and at a certain point, things start to gel or things will bubble up. I mean, I, I do think of fiction as more or less a kind of refined form of uh, daydreaming, right? Daydreaming with ideas or with uh, bits of news reports, those sorts of things. And, and I think, uh, you know, I'll, I'll start to think, well, what if we trace that out? And often I'll use index cards or nowadays maybe just a file to jot you know, almost like potential scenes or potential ideas of a, of a character. And usually it's a mess and there are many contradictions and they don't really add up. But after six months or a year, something starts to emerge from that. And then uh, a world, some kind of world and a world of ideas as well as a world of characters. I think that various links between these. And then I do write pretty much every day when I am writing. Uh, there are periods where I don't do any writing, but when I do, I'm doing probably three, four hours a day. And because that's partly to stay immersed in the world of the book, I feel like if you, if you do it more irregularly, it's, it's difficult to stay, stay fully present in what's happening. And uh, the, I, th things start to appear uh, somewhat distant and not, and, and not quite as rich. And I take that on, I go on like that for, you know, uh, drafting this book. I mean, I probably I had imagined it would take half the time, but it went on until probably the first draft even was, you know, 700 pages, 800 pages. It actually got longer from there. So, uh, but but that that's more or less the process. And then there's a process at the end of contraction where I brought down a final draft into what so is actually something shorter than, than, than what existed. All right, let's move on to your gateway books. What were some of the books that opened the world of literature for you? Oh, uh, great. This is a this is an interesting question for me, partly because, to be perfectly honest, I was not a huge reader of fiction until college and, and maybe afterward, even more so. Uh, so earlier, the, the books that maybe most appealed to me were philosophy. Um, in particular, I would say. I would say philosophical and literary, though, in that way, those were the writers that appealed to me. So 
Descartes' uh, meditations on first philosophy. There's something very intimate about the way he's prosecuting these philosophical questions. You know, it's the opposite of say what is done in analytic philosophy. It's very personal. You know, he and he wants to uh, welcome you to a certain challenge he's run into, as it were. And I, I found that very, very compelling and inviting, and both. You might say I found it to be beautiful thinking, like at one and the same time, it was aesthetic, but also very rich in um, conceptual content. And I think that has remained with me to today. I don't want I don't like work that is purely, hey, there's a great idea in it, but it's its form is is botched or work that is maybe beautiful formally. uh, it, It can be quite enticing. But when you really look deeply at it, it's not actually confronting the world very deeply. So I think Descartes and as well Schopenhauer um, and his aphorisms, again, the literary philosophical quality is what what drew me along. So those would be two. And then as a third one from high school, anyways, I would say uh, Steppenwolf, uh, Herman Hesse was one that I remember reading. And I think maybe a lot of people at that age also, I mean, Hesse is not exactly his reputation maybe has suffered some over the, over the years, but uh, it introduced me to some of those issues that this, this the, uh, you know, literary work could tackle the very same issues maybe Schopenhauer was discussing uh, in his own mode. Right. What books are you currently reading or looking forward to? Uh, right now, I'm actually reading a book called uh, A Philosophy of Madness. And the, the subtitle is The Experience of Psychotic Thinking. And it's by, a, it's, a, it's a book of my uh, girlfriend's actually. And I just saw it on the shelf. And it's by a Dutch philosopher. His name is Wouter Koosters. And uh, it's like a 700 page book. It's from MIT Press. So it's sort of come across the, the Atlantic as, as something that uh, American philosophers are starting to explore. And I, I just, <laughs> I was so interesting to think that the phenomenology of psychosis is of the, the matter on which he, he meditates for, you know, 700 pages. And he not only is a philosopher, but he has had psychotic breaks apparently in his life. And those are interspersed journal entries or other things which are, you know, somewhat lunatic, you know, in his own description of them. And he's trying to parse out maybe the sense in lunacy and the ways in which maybe philosophy, as he puts it, uh, what is merely uh, armchair matter for the philosopher is a matter of life and death for the insane. Like they treat uh, sort of Descartes' problems as real. It's, it is their situation, it is their world. They, they live these problems out. So I, I became sort of fascinated by that topic and I'm, I'm, I'm in sort of uh, investigating that uh, with him. Uh, along with that, I'm reading uh, a classic, Invisible Man. And I, I just think, uh, it's so interesting to read a book that's so unsentimental and that is so uncertain about what the right society would look like or what the right point of view would be. And when it's in a world where our books have become much more uh, public service announcement style, like you kind of know where what you're supposed to think uh, pretty early. It's wonderful to read a book where it, it's not clear, you know, that narrative doesn't seem to understand himself very well right that's one of the central themes and I did think while I'm reading it of 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 my own book the logos and these there's a lot set in New York and sort of puzzling through that so those are the works that I'm currently involved with are there any books coming out you're really looking forward to uh to be perfectly honest I have not really 
my reading often doesn't track what's going on. I do. I have a book that I'm looking forward to. That I'll just mention it. It's called, um, and this is maybe I'm looking towards a new novel ultimately, though I have no idea of the form now. These are the things I'm thinking about. It's called Jesus the Magician, and it's by a Columbia historian. It's a, apparently it's like a seminal text in um, religious studies about how Jesus was a part of, you know, potentially a part of a set of sort of roving mystics and uh, who essentially conjured certain miracles, et cetera. That was a big part of what, what allowed them to have the uh, mesmerizing power uh, psychologically. And it, uh, it, so I'm, I'm fascinated to see uh, how conceptions of ancient magic feed into some of the early uh, religious figures, whether that's Jesus or it's also true in, in India and other regions uh, that magic is not necessarily always that far from uh, you know, the deepest sort of profundity of, of, of moral guidance, et cetera. Are there any authors who have carte blanche with you, authors who you'd go out and buy their book uh, wherever it came out, whenever it came out? Uh, yeah, yeah, current writers? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, Sergio's one that you mentioned already. Uh, I just, I mean, I find him inspiring on multiple levels. I mean, one is, as I say, the life story that, you know, when you talk to him, he's like, yeah, I'm a lawyer. I have a real life. You know, I'm not, I, I don't just sit in seminar rooms talking about literature. And that's obviously infused his work. It's given it a kind of volatility, I feel like, um, uh, in uh, uh, that a lot of books uh, don't have. There's some rough edges that I, so pretty much uh, I mean, his book, uh, Persona, which is not probably read as much as the, the other two main works. Um, I think is it very profound. It has a has extended, uh, you know, dramatic work in the middle, right? A dialogue, uh, and uh, you know, it's these are weird, strange works that don't give you a, a roadmap, you know, to reading them. But uh, um, he's he's definitely a guy that uh, you'll always find him him up to something um, uh, worthwhile. I think, yeah. I think he's got something new coming out late this year. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Mark De Silva. Have you always wanted to be a novelist but life just gets in the way? We can help. At failwriter.com, we will send you out personalised rejection letters from major publishers twice a month so you can show your friends and family and feel like a real writer. Use promo code and naked singularity for your first 88 letters free. Visit feldrider.com. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Mark's Top 10. Um, let me see. Um, I, as many of your other uh, guests have said, I'll, I'll give you 10, top 10, I'm not sure. But all of these are, are works that have, have made an impression. Some of them I've only read quite recently, to be honest, but um, they've still made a big impression. Uh, uh, I'll start with uh, the Blythedale Romance, Nathaniel Hawthorne. And it's essentially a book, you know, everybody you know, reads The Scarlet Letter and House of Seven Gables, the other works that are um, maybe more influential in some ways. But, you know, he, he participated in a commune at that time, along with certain other writers, et cetera, and I think in upstate New York. Um, or maybe perhaps Massachusetts, but 
Um, and it was essentially the book is a kind of novel of ideas and the he, it's sort of a satirical take on the commune itself and how these people who see themselves in a very self-important way, reinventing society, a society that essentially is much more communitarian, right? Because when Hawthorne is writing, that's like the height of classical liberalism where the state doesn't do any you know, thing to, to help people. And so there was a sort of self-importance of this commune, but Hawthorne sort of pokes around at it and and I, it's it's fascinating what what he thinks an idea is worth or isn't worth because he kind of has an ironic take on what these people are up to. The other thing I really like about it is the way he'll start a sentence in perfect ordinary reality, and he'll sort of let his imagination run away with him, and will end up somewhere quite odd. And the narrator will often comment that you know I'm not sure how how true that last bit was, or I, I you know that that type of uh, part of, uh, you know, the romance element of his books, where he often says, I'm a romancer, not a novelist. Uh, I, I find influential too. And I think even my logos has something like that. Um, Growth of the Soil. Uh, this is Newt Hampson. Um, I think uh, this, this is a very interesting book. This is a book that was apparently quite popular with the, the Nazi party, because it had these ideas of returning to the soil and uh, reinventing society again in a certain way. Like in Hawthorne, again, we're talking about a utopian idea. Um, uh, Hampson has a you know has that kind of strange reputation because we know as a human being he wasn't uh, a great guy. Uh, but the book I find ex exceptionally powerful, I, and I think it's it's written almost like a parable. Um, you know, it is about returning to the earth, and he he sort of discusses it's a critique of sort of contemporary society in a, in a way that hunger his or his earlier work is but it's written in, a, in in the manner of a parable the thing i think of more recently that's a little bit like it is life and times of michael k um and i think kutsia has picked up on some of the threads that's who i thought of while reading this i only read this maybe three or four years ago but i think it is a very very powerful work um one of my re my real real favorites and uh it, it's uh this again i only came across a few years ago is the sleepwalkers by herman brock um and he is one of these modernists that maybe has receded somewhat compared to some of his rivals um people talk about his book um uh on virgil but uh, the sleepwalkers is a triptych it's uh, three books in one sort of that are sort of tangentially related characters recur and there are straight pages of like transcendental philosophy that you might think you could pull out of uh, Kant or, or Hegel, uh, coupled with sort of slight satires of the 19th century, the sort of rom romance story, coupled with, uh, uh, I think ultimately, as a number of the books on my list are about, is a transition from one era or one society, that of the 19th century to the 20th, and the fall of a certain order. And I think apparently this book can be seen in, in one of Antonioni's films uh, uh, laying open on the table. So it is a book of a certain amount of angst, um, that sort of thing. Um, so, uh, moving on, number four, Your Face Tomorrow, Javier Marias. He, he was someone, to, to go back to your earlier question, he's someone I read pretty much whatever I find coming out. Um, uh, I think he's, he's, he's far and away, you know, uh, on his own kind of tier of, of writers. I, I, uh, very, very fluid, but very, very Jamesian. His sort of syntax is, is casual and slangy, 
but it's extended and, and broke in its own way. And it's absolutely contemporary, I feel like, that there's no antiquarianism as one gets since they say Uh It's very much, I want to deal with the world as it is. I'm not, I'm not caught up in, a, in nostalgia or sorrow for some previous era or passing. Um, it's, it also incorporates elements of science fiction almost, of mind reading, of espionage, of war, and one can maybe see some of those things in some of my work as well, particularly Square Wave. Uh, but I, I really uh, admire him. Uh, Nostromo, uh, Joseph Conrad, I mentioned Conrad earlier. I think this is the, you know, seminal sort of um, colonial novel uh, that, you know, puts, casts this thing in a, in a very sort of, you know, dramatic kinds of uh, very dark terms, but also very dramatic and shows why, why one would even want to behave in, in ways so unjust and what makes it tempting and appealing. I see that the lineage unfolding from that being people like uh, Nepal, uh, gorillas, or uh, waiting for the barbarians, which is, you know, I see that also coming out of that. But Nostromo seems to me the, um, the central work of, of understanding the colonial desire, the, the, the avarice, and the consequences as well. Um, moving on, The Confidence Man, Herman Melville. Uh, I, for me, that's his great work. I know people like Pierre and obviously Moby Dick, but Confidence Man is, is uh, it, you know, it, it, it certainly speaks to the world that we have uh, very directly, certain American dreams about persuasion, I think is the big subject of the book. And, uh, you know, he spends his time on this sailing ship, so our, our sort of stage for the, the book is co continually moving. Uh, and he keeps appearing in different guises to sell people uh, different types of stock uh, in companies that don't exist, you know, and he's a swindler. And by the end, it's sort of tragic when you see like there's something canonically American in the spirit that he's selling. And in the book is laced with thoughts about America and fraudulence, frankly, and the way that even America in, in its inception and for centuries later was a place you sort of ran to for a swindle of your own, some kind of hustle, some kind of opportunity that was not yet clear. And, and, and that book foregrounds that. Um, Hyperion, uh, Herldelin, I think this is a very unusual book, his only novel, I believe, uh, very Baroque, steeped in, in the classics, steeped in, in, in Greek philosophy. Uh, it's, it's a bit difficult to describe, frankly. Uh, it is a bit of a, a seminal text for a number of philosophers, though, uh, whether it's Nietzsche um, or Heidegger later and other, uh, other thinkers trying to parse the, the meat on the bone with, with this particular poet and writer. Um, it's, it's, the language is, 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 is simply extraordinary there. And again, it's wedded to thought, but yeah, I, I, that's one book I won't say too much more about because it's, it's difficult to distill, but it, there's something special. It's a book you can, it, that has an uh, incantatory quality to it. Um, next up, uh, Sartre Risardis, Thomas Carlyle, uh, you know, brilliant essayist, this book is sort of a book, I mean, is in the tradition of Jacques the Fatalist, I think, um, Diderot's book, or Candide, Gulliver's Travels, a kind of parody, you know, it's, it's a humorous element to it. In his case, the parody is of uh, Sartre Resources, an offering of philosophy of fashion, of dress, and the idea is, I think, in the way of, say, much, much earlier, um, Rabelais offers a kind of send-up of medieval philosophy in uh, Gargantua and Pantagruel. Here we get a sort of send-up of later philosophers. 
um, absurdly speculating over fashion and style. And I think what's funny about the book is those are subjects that absolutely exist today. But what, what he considered comedic is actually quite rich. And um, uh, it's funny how, how, how time has affected that work, I think. But his, his genius with the English language comes across in this book too. So it's very beautiful. Um, the Leopard, Giuseppe Lampedusa, right? This is another book about changing times, right? The fall of the aristocracy and the rise of a merchant and commercial culture, right? Uh, the book is essentially about a prince who is town or, or principality is being bought over by uh, the bourgeoisie and merchants and how he's having to uh, modulate his power with a new, uh, a new world order that's rising right in front of him. This is in Italy. Uh, Napadusa only wrote one novel, I think it was published posthumously. Uh, uh, but again, it's a it's a brilliant um, exploration and of the death of one society, uh, which in some respects, you know, ought to die, and in, and the birth of another society. And this one tends towards the nostalgia for the aristocracy. I think. Um, I also think that book, if I uh, falls in line with books like Man Without Qualities or Brideshead Revisited, all books that again want to talk about what the transition to a new order of mass culture of um, where the values of, uh, you know, honor and loyalty and the kind of Baroque kind of sensibility of the aristocracy is falling away for good and bad. It's a sort of a complex passing. And I think that period fascinates me um, because it says a lot about who we are today. That was maybe the last big transition of, of passing of power from one class to another. And the middle classes still are running the show in that way. Um, and finally, I believe Pushkin's short stories, uh, Queen of Spades, but there are many others. I read a collection recently, uh, and I, I read a, some secondary literature, uh, particularly by Tolstoy, describing how he used to pull out these short stories before writing his great works for seeking inspiration. Again, the, they're very compressed, but as you would expect from Pushkin, the language is extraordinary, and they're very distilled, uh, and they again concern a kind of um, maybe an older order. I, they reminded me a bit of Edgar Allan Poe in some ways uh, by the symbolisms that are embedded in them. But I, I, uh, maybe it's not surprising. It's something that had not come to my attention, but these, these are, uh, it makes sense that they would inspire Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Turgenev and others. And I, I think those deserve a much, a much wider reading. What a great list. So many things to read in there. <laughs> All right. Before we wrap it up, do you want to tell us where we can find you, where we can get in touch with you and where we can buy your brilliant books? Uh, yes, I'm, uh, I guess online, I have a, obviously my own website, which is mark-de-silva at.com. But you can also find me at Twitter at mkdesilva1. Um, I, you know, I don't post a ton there, but I, I edit as well. So I sometimes post stories that I'm, I'm editing. Um, I would say, uh, the, as far as locating the books, $2 radio put out square wave, and that can be found, um, uh, versus via bookshop and I, and other sellers. And the, uh, the logos will be out on clash books in September. Um, and you can find that for pre-order already, I believe, in the States, uh, various Barnes and & Noble and other outlets. 
And uh, it can also be found, I think, at Book Depository, the Splice edition that is coming out April 28th. So there you I have really it. urge everybody to go out and get a copy of the logos and SquareWave as well. Um, it is, the logos especially, is something that will blow you away. Um, SquareWave is also brilliant. Um, and yeah, I really look forward to reading whatever you put out in the future. Thank you so much. It's, it's lovely uh, to be read carefully and to be read enthusiastically. I, I, I appreciate it. It has been such a pleasure talking to you, Mark, and enjoy your evening in New York. You too. Thanks once again to Mark De Silva. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod, and you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back with your next episode next week.